Today, May 40 here. Happy Valentine's Day. So I was just thinking about the good marriages that, that I know, right? I don't know that many seemingly good, great marriages that well. But with all the good marriages I know, the participants in them are hyper-competent, right? We're talking about people in the top 10%, top 20% maybe of people. So it seems to me it's not so much that love makes great people, though I'm sure that a good marriage does improve people. But overwhelmingly, it seems to me from my life experience that good people are much more likely to get married, stay married, and make a success of marriage. So I think about the people I know who are in love. They all pay their bills on time. They're all reliable people. They're all fair dinkum. They're all, you know, fairly unpretentious, right? They are hyper-competent. They can look after their kids. They can look after their marriage. They can look after their business. So none of them are shut-ins. They're all parts of community. So I'm just struck by the overwhelmingly competent nature of all those I know with a, a good marriage, right? They can get up in the middle of the night to look after their kids or they can hire a Jamaican nurse to get up in the middle of the night to look after their kids and they they get to work on time they get their jobs done they meet their responsibilities they get places if at all possible on time they have a clear sense of, of priorities so uh, it, it doesn't sound very sexy but just the, the sheer competence of the people I know who have good marriages as opposed to the people I know who are deeply flawed all right, and they get married, and they say things like, "Oh man, my wife, my wife, man, she doesn't, she doesn't let me watch porn." All right, that that type of marriage isn't gonna last a, a long time. So the deeply flawed people I know who are married, they have deeply flawed marriages. The admirable, respectable people that that I would otherwise look up to, even if they weren't married. All right, they are the ones who have the good marriages. And the really messed up people who, who get married, they have really messed up marriages. So I think when we date, when we relate, when we mate, when we settle down, we, we can't you know, do much better and we're very unlikely to do much worse than where we're at. We're overwhelmingly likely to get to someone who's pretty much on our level. And so two hyper-competent, efficient, effective, dedicated, truthful people with usually way above average IQ get together, yeah, they've got a pretty good chance of making marriage work. So I'm thinking about all these UFO stories and I'm thinking, I'm thinking this is a great Rorschach's test, all right? Because if you find life too boring, if you're missing an enchanted experience of life where, where you want you know magic and and mystery right then you're gonna yearn for ufos and extraterrestrials now i don't believe that these three objects that the united states military has shot down over the past week are extraterrestrials i don't believe in ufos so my basic approach to life as i understand it is pretty realistic pretty empirical so I know Tucker Carlson loves to talk about uh, UFOs, right? Tucker, you know, does these these periodic UFO segments, and uh, I've got friends who are quite open to the idea of UFOs. Yeah, I don't really believe in UFOs. The odds of alien life, right, 
coming down here are exceedingly, exceedingly small. So I think what's happening is that our radar and our detective systems have gotten that much better. So all sorts of flying objects, which are out there for businesses or just individuals having fun, I suspect that these three objects the U.S. military shot down were, were you know, not terribly a, a great threat to the United States. But, you know, wh where do you stand as far as needing excitement, needing, you know, magic and mystery, right? If, if, you're, if you're desperate for magic and mystery, then you may very well turn to UFOs. Now, religious people, I notice, rarely yearn for UFOs. I don't hear religious people talking about alien life, UFOs, right? Th those kind of conspiracy theories don't really seem to have much resonance with, with religious people. So I think what's going on is that our radar detection is better. Our, ironically, our air defenses are better. So we're picking up all sorts of harmless objects and just out of the small chance that they could be some kind of threat or a menace, right, we're, we're shooting them down. But I don't think that these three objects that we've shot down, all right, I, I don't think they're alien life. I don't think they're UFOs. I don't think they're even uh, from, from China. I think they're just, you know, stuff up there, either launched by individuals or corporations that the U.S. military has, has shut down. But it's a good Rorschach's test, right? Do you, think, do you think the elites are hiding from us the secrets of UFOs? Do you think the elites are banding together to hide from us the secrets of alien life? Do you think that there's all this magical, mysterious, incredibly powerful UFO alien intelligence out there that we can tap into and transform our lives? Right, count me, count me highly skeptical on, on that score. But I have to admit, I'm coming from a background of uh, somewhat romantic. I I have a personality that's you know frequently seeking for more <laughs> to life than is really there. So that's how I like the the definition of romantic. I think I got this from Dennis Prager, someone who sees more in reality than is really there. And so people used to say about my blog back in the heyday of my blogging that, you know, Luke's method was just to throw a whole bunch of stuff against the wall, constantly searching for a more exciting life. And so as, as a blogger, as a journalist, as a live streamer, you're looking for excitement. You're looking to engage people emotionally, right? If you can't engage people emotionally, then you're going to have a much harder time building and sustaining an audience. And so how do you, you know, engage people emotionally? Like you, you appeal to the, the most primal emotions and you offer them something that they can't get in the mainstream news media. So the, the elites are hiding from us, you know, the secrets of alien life, secrets of UFOs. And, you know, how come our air defense system is just so incompetent? Well, I don't think it's so incompetent. I think, ironically, because we've become more competent, that we're more alert and alive and see more details about what's in our airspace that this is triggering more alerts so it's, it's a little bit similar to having the citizen app on your phone so when i check out the, the citizen app all right I, you know i'm constantly getting updates uh once you know someone was was robbed you know just on, on my street you know other times there are car accidents all around me so when you get the citizens app or you pay a lot of attention to the news particularly you know, uh, local news, right? If it bleeds, it leads. If there's something horrible going down, you're much more likely to get a notification. If it's just a beautiful, sunny, peaceful day, then, right, that, that's not going to command so much attention. Why is Ford a Jew? Ford became a Jew because it 
spoke to him socially, culturally, religiously, divinely, ethically, morally, legalistically, literarily, personally, communally. Judaism resonated with me from my, my first encounters with the ABC, KBC radio talk show host, Dennis Prager, to my economics professor, Russell Roberts, who was a Baal Shachuva, meaning uh, someone who grew up as a secular Jew and then became an Orthodox Jew, to the other Jews that I met at UCLA who impressed me as particularly smart, competent, and having you know good family and communal lives. I was impressed by the higher quality of Jewish life. I was impressed by how Judaism was a religion that uh, was able to make sense to me and didn't demand that I surrender my reason didn't demand that I believe all sorts of absurd things. I appreciated that Judaism was a religion that was primarily about behavior rather than, you know, about dogmatic theology. Okay, what's going on with all these unidentified flying objects? I wonder if that is what's happening. Listen, <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. They didn't, they didn't tell us. They, they don't know what they shot down. They, don't, they haven't recovered any of the objects that they shot down, these last three. None of them. They haven't gotten any of them. If they have, they, they told us otherwise today. And as far as I can tell, Sean, the only reason that they're really shooting these things down right now is they got embarrassed by the fact that Joe Biden let a Chinese spy balloon cross the entire continental United States and didn't do anything about it until it had taken all the pictures that it wanted. That's what's really going on here. There is nobody who appears to be in control or actually running this ship. I don't know where Joe Biden is or what he's doing, but he doesn't appear to be in charge. Senator, you got to explain this to me. And I think the American people have the same question is, how do you shoot something down, but you don't know what you shot at? Great question, Sean. That's exactly the question that uh, was posed today in this briefing that you just mentioned. And they don't have answers for that. They said they don't know how to. I, when I say they, I mean the Pentagon. I mean the intelligence community. They say, well, we don't know how to classify these things. They're not balloons, but we're not sure what they are. Which begs the question, then why are we shooting them down? They said they didn't think they posed any hostile intent. And I go back, Sean, to what I said a second ago. I think the reason all of a sudden the administration wants to shoot down anything that flies is because they got embarrassed. They got caught lying to the American people. You know, Joe Biden didn't even know that this spy balloon was over Alaska when it was over Alaska. They didn't tell him, which goes back to the. Yeah, I think this is all pointless hype. It's literally one of those bright shiny objects that compels your attention but isn't particularly important so i don't think uh, that these you know unidentified flying objects are some sinister force and i think it's a horrible thing that uh, china was able to send a balloon over our airspace i don't see what a balloon can do that is you know more more dangerous more devastating than, than what satellites can provide so i'm not going to jump on board here with this you know bandwagon to bash the Biden administration, bash America's defenses, because, you know, we, we don't know what these flying objects were that we're able to shoot down. Some time, but I, I do think the backlash will, will ultimately win. But I, I got into a point where I don't think that's a good thing. And I, and I really was genuinely enthused by Trumpism. Uh, there was, there was a, you know, if I go back to my, myself uh, four or five years ago, the past is another country or your, your previous self is another person in some, some level. But I, I was gen, genuinely enthused and optimistic for the future. I, I thought things are going to work. And, and we would probably get past a lot of the kind of negativity trolling of the alt-right, you know, gas chamber memes and calling people out. You know, we're going to kind of move past that. There, there is going to be something really positive about this. And 
I, as I look on things now, I, I do think that MAGA or Trumpism or populism, whatever you want to call it, kind of will triumph. But it's gonna it's gonna triumph in a, in a rather horrible way. This is Richard Spencer talking about how he tried to elevate the the alt right. Um, that's that's just a little humorous. Uh, I mean, he's the one who who drove the alt right into the the sewer of of Nazism. Uh, did everything he he could to you know, drive out anyone respectable and associate the, the alt right movement with you know nineteen thirties nineteen forties German Nazism under under Hitler. Right, that was that was his his way of trying to elevate things. So, question from the chat: Doesn't Ford not believe that Jesus is the Messiah? No, I don't believe that. But it's not even the particularly most important question. What's most important is is what you do. More important than what you believe. Right, whether or not you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, right, that doesn't really have you know that much importance compared to are you a decent person? Are you even a person who does you know good good things in the world, or are you just someone with you know the the correct theology? So I appreciate Judaism's emphasis on deed over than creed over creed. Right, what you do is more important than what you believe. Right, your behavior is more important than your theology. And as Jesus did not fulfill any of the messianic prophecies, I don't find him you know a particularly compelling case for, to be the Messiah. In fact, I'm unaware of anything new that Jesus said that I, I believe is true, and anything true that he said, I don't believe any of it was new. All right, so I've kind of been wrung out by, you know, negative entertainment. You know, the the type of you know movie or, or TV show that just really takes a toll on you. So I've been looking for something more uplifting. I've been watching season one of New Amsterdam about a hospital in New York and this innovative medical director takes over, but he's able to make all these important changes at the New Amsterdam Hospital, but it's something of a toll to his personal life, and here is his wife. She's not very happy with him. I can't do this anymore, Max. Wait, that wasn't the bit I wanted. Where's the bit I wanted? All right, she's not happy with him. I can't let my daughter grow up feeling like she's not the most important thing in her father's life. Ah! I can't let my daughter grow up feeling like she is not the most important thing in her father's life. So what if you've got three kids, five kids, eight kids, 12 kids? Right. Obviously, they're not going to be able to feel like they're the most important thing in a father's life. Do, do women really want to be the most important thing in, in a man's life? Because I think most women would find that boring. Right. If if a man was primarily dedicated to her, I'm pretty sure most women would find that boring, unfulfilling, not exciting, not inspiring enough. Pretty sure most women want a man to be dedicated to something greater, higher than her happiness, than, than her. And I certainly don't think that a woman wants, wants, you know, her husband to be primarily dedicated to their one child. I would think that she'd, you know, want the man to have a mission, have a, have a purpose in life, to have a cause, to have things that he's fighting for and believes in. So, you know, this TV and movie cliche that women are really upset because m their husbands are not making them the number one thing in their life 
just does not ring true to me, right? The, the successful marriages I know, the man has, you know, a mission. He has priorities and his wife is high in his priorities, but, you know, his child is not number one. His wife's not number one in his life. Now, I think it's different for men. I think men do want to be the number one thing in their wife's life. Number one thing, right? Not just number one person, the number one thing. But I really don't think that uh, wives overwhelmingly want to be the number one thing in their man's life because that's just emasculating him, just kind of cutting off his balls. I I don't think that uh, women are going to find that particularly exciting if a man's making her happiness his priority rather than any kind of transcendent mission or drive or something he's trying to accomplish. So I really enjoyed the 1992 book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. I think there's a lot of wisdom to it. But the If Books Could Kill podcast was not so impressed. Here we go. Here's critique. Discussing. Once women had offered them a topic they were interested in, they often did most of the talking. But they did not regard it as their responsibility to initiate conversation or find something to talk about. They left it to their female partner to do what Fishman called interactional shit work. Mm -hmm. So even on... So this is these two blokes are trying to figure out where there are real differences between men and women and they're going to make the argument the differences between men and women are very small less than 10 percent in most things less than five percent well right off the bat i can think of something where there's a dramatic difference between men and women right a man is 10 times more likely to kill you than a woman a man is 10,000 times more likely to rape you than a woman a man is 10 20 30 50 100 times more likely thousand times more likely to beat you up Right. A man is, you know, 100 times, 500 times more likely to stick a knife in you, to deliberately run over you, to, you know, invade your home with a dangerous weapon trying to rob you. So it's not a matter of 10%. It's, right? it's a matter in this, you know, vital area of crime where the difference is about 10 times, 20 times, 50 times, 100 times between men and women. What seems like a simple question of like, do men talk more than women? It's like, well, in these studies, they're finding that men and women talk roughly the same, but women talk more in a way of like fishing around for topics. And then once they find a topic, he then does more of the talking. Mm -hmm. This kind of shows up in all of the studies on this is that like oftentimes you do find differences, but once you drill into the differences, it's like, oh, it's actually really situational. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that I I guess I never thought that like women talk more. Me neither, actually. That's just never really. Maybe that's because I like to talk. And so the. (laughs) So they're struggling to find any significant difference between men and women. I mean, this is absurd. This is the the blindness of the liberal perspective, of the liberal egalitarian perspective, right? People with a traditional orientation in in life don't have a hard time finding areas where there are 10 times, 20 times, 100 times differences between men and women. <laughs> the idea that um, it, it's a female thing would not compute in my brain. Do you just use the phrase, excuse me, a man is talking, and they talk a lot less? <laughs> I'm man. So the chat says, Christians say you'll go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Yeah, they do say things like that. I don't find that uh, terribly compelling. So it, it's one reason why I chose Judaism, which puts much more of an emphasis on behavior than on what you believe. So from the Jewish perspective, all good people have a role in the world to come, no matter what they believe or don't believe. Explaining here. I'm in my talking cave. Please be quiet. (laughs) But so 
There's also something called the gender similarities hypothesis. Okay. One of the researchers on this says a, a much better way to think about gender differences is that men are from North Dakota and women are from South Dakota. Are there differences if you really look for them? Sure. But there's actually much more similarities if you look for them. Uh -huh. So one of the examples that she uses is there is actually data that shows that men are less likely to share personal details in their friendships. That I believe. Yeah. <laughs> but when you actually look at the specifics, most men reveal personal information about themselves to their friends and uh -huh. most women reveal personal information about themselves to their friends. But the minority who don't reveal personal information is like slightly larger among men than among women. Uh -huh. Okay, there's a gender difference there on average, but the most accurate way to talk about that is that most people reveal personal information to their close friends. That's interesting too. You know, I, there, there's a couple of levels to this because you can identify all sorts of differences potentially between men sure. and women, but then the next level question is immediately, well, is that just socialization. Right, right. Right. I mean, there was there was a study a few years ago that I'm probably going to um, misremember a bit, but it, that tried to map male and female brains. Mm -hmm. This was a big deal at the time because they found that there were some sort of average differences, you know, the mm -hmm. size of certain features in the brain. Mm -hmm. But there there were no truly definitive distinctions, no singular right. feature you could point to and be like, that's a male brain. Right. And right. because there's just too much variation in both cases. Um, and even that, you know, whether or not. So they, they never mentioned that, oh, by the way, you know, men commit 10, 20, 100 times the rate of violent crime as compared to women. Right. This obvious significant difference between men and women doesn't even occur to these two liberals. Certain types of brain activity might be influenced by socialization uh, can, you know, is, right. is sort of up in the air. I would think that a huge chunk of any differences we're seeing are socialized. Well, I, I mean, reading all this stuff, I actually sort of concluded that, like, I'm not actually married to the idea that, like, there's no differences between men and women. Yeah. And I'm not married to the idea that, like, there are differences between men and women. In, in essentially every domain, there are more differences within men and women than there are between them. So in this great meta-analysis, they found that almost all the... Right. And they say this as though it's some great insight you often hear, uh, the same type of people saying the same thing about race. That, oh, there, there are bigger differences, you know, within races than between races. But yet, if you got, you know, one group that's committing violent crime at 10 times, 20 times, 100 times the rate of other groups, that seems to be a pretty significant difference. Studies of gender differences find less than a 10% difference. Yeah. Most yeah, what about violent crime, mates? Most of them find less than 5% differences. Right. And people are not only their genders, right? So it, if you have a person in front of you and you're trying to figure out how talkative they're going to be, it would be really reductive to be like, well, you're a woman, so you're going to talk more, right? Because there's no such thing as like a woman. It, it, it's also a Protestant, a middle class, a raised in the South, a college educated. Mm -hmm. There's all these other traits that... All I don't know. I live in Los Angeles. I'm particularly concerned about crime. Is there anything that gives away whether someone's more likely to be dangerous than, than someone else. And yeah, male versus female, one significant difference. All right, uh, young versus old. You know, some groups commit astronomically more violent crime than other groups. Also, theoretically, would make somebody more or less talkative. Right. And so at a certain point, rather than doing this like eight-dimensional calculation of like, okay, she's white, so she's going to talk more, but she's a woman. Oh, it's just so complicated. It's so got to be more nuanced say these blokes oh, man she can talk less like you can just treat those individuals and in 10 minutes of a conversation you can be like oh this person's a little bit more talkative than average right so like at the end of the day you're still gonna have to treat people as individuals and move forward in almost every relationship you know i know well all right the, the woman speaks considerably more than the man i'd say in, in my relationships probably on average the, the woman spoke three times as many words as i did 
when we were talking to each other. On that basis anyway. So like, I think it's great to study this stuff. I think it's really interesting. But ultimately, it's, it's really not that useful. And I can't think of any relationship I've had where I spoke more than the woman. Even if you drill down to like the biological level and you're looking at like the brains, right? Uh, you can say, okay, there are median differences between male and female brains, but there, is, there are also areas where they overlap such that you can hold two beliefs at once, right? One, there are median differences. Two, gender exists on a spectrum trans people are real, et cetera, right? right? Like you don't <laughs> yeah. need to hold on to this binary of there are there are differences between men and women or there are none. It's all fake. Right. Um, but at the same time, it, it almost it feels unnecessary where it's just like, just try to be nice. Right. You know? <laughs> just treat people like people. I mean, this kind of gets us to the last section of the episode. I mean, there's, there's more of the book to talk about. He has like a whole kind of advice, really bad advice toward the end of the book. I can read it on my own while I'm just sweating out my autism and my <laughs> hot bath. <laughs> There's nothing, I mean, we could easily dunk on this stuff. He says you should organize your relationship as a, like a point system. Yeah, that's healthy for sure. Whatever it, you know, qualitatively, it's like, okay, we all sort of hold other people in esteem. This doesn't have to be that bad. And then he actually lists the actions and how many points to award. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, fuck this guy. I mean, I was, I was deep in like, fuck. Okay. So some people really struggled with the outcome of the, the Super Bowl. They, Really had a hard time handling it. Sad. story here out of uh, Orange County. We are learning more about the victim of a deadly confrontation on the Pacific Coast Highway in Dana Point. The Orange County Sheriff's Department says Dr. Michael John Mamone died after he was hit by a car while cycling, then stabbed by the driver. The 58-year-old was an emergency room physician, worked for Providence Mission Hospital. That is where Fox 11's Christina Gonzalez live for us tonight. So this emergency room physician was murdered by a recent immigrant from Jamaica. Like, where is our immigration safety board? Like, why did we need to bring in immigrants from Jamaica? Why? Night with more of this bizarre story, Christina. 
This is so hard. He is a very popular doctor, has been here for years, rides his bike all the time because he doesn't live far away, and the location where he was killed is literally up the street on PCH. Watch. Leaving flowers on the corner where popular emergency room doctor Michael Mamoni was killed in what orange... So he was deliberately run over by this Jamaican immigrant, and then the... Jamaican immigrant got out of his car, started screaming about white privilege, and went and stabbed the doctor to death. Orange County authorities are describing as a road rage incident. Video here from a nearby home surveillance. The image is posted on a neighborhood website. The 58-year-old doctor was riding his bike, stopped at the red light on the corner of PCH and Crown Valley. It's crazy to, to ride a bike on a busy street. I had a girlfriend who used to do this on Santa Monica Boulevard. It would bother me if you love someone. Like, how would you be at ease with them biking along a busy street, particularly in Los Angeles, with so many wackos? Valley Parkway, when a driver in a white Lexus hit him from behind and, according to investigators, got out of the car and stabbed the doctor. Other drivers actually held that suspect down until Orange County Sheriff arrived. They have identified him as 39-year-old Van Roy Evan Smith, an accountant from Long Beach. Okay, so he stabs this uh, doctor to death while screaming about white privilege. And so this challenge is one of my most frequent points that we weren't born yesterday, we're not born gullible. So do all these anti-white messages that we put out as a society, are they responsible for a ton of these deaths? I don't think they're responsible for a ton of these deaths, but yeah, on the margins, they can affect people, right? And this, this Jamaican immigrant seems to have been operating very much on the, the margins. Beach. One of his clients providing us with photos and saying, This is beyond shocking to me. It seems um, somewhat out of character. Um, These accountants, man, accountants are out of control. Why do we allow, you know, accountants in? Don't we have enough homegrown accountants? I did not. He, didn't, he never presented to me that he would have any dangerous propensities. Investigators say they have found no connection. Yeah, was there... Eddie, was there any way to realize that this Jamaican immigrant might have dangerous propensities? He was an accountant. And between Smith and Dr. Mamoni, which makes the whole incident even scarier to other bike riders who use that strip regularly. I think there's a lot more road rage than, than I've seen in the past. Yeah, I get road rage when I'm driving and have to deal with, with cyclists. So I think you're crazy if you're going to cycle along roads you know, right next to cars. You're just taking your life in your hand. Oh, um, what makes you say that? What do you mean? Every, I don't know. I, you know, little small things people seem to get really upset about. It is dangerous. I know a lot of people have stopped riding um, that I used to know because of it. The hospital releasing a statement saying that they're stunned by the devastating tragedy, the entire... Disturbing new surveillance video shows a bicyclist being hit by a car before being stabbed by the same driver as he lies helplessly in the street. The cyclist has been identified as an emergency room physician in Laguna Beach. Right now, the motive for the deadly attack remains a mystery. KTLA's John Finolio is live in Dana Point where he spoke with the doctor's stunned colleagues. John.
Sharon, Micah, that's right. You can imagine colleagues here are having a very tough time with this news. Dr. Michael Mamoni worked in the emergency department here at Providence Mission Hospital in Laguna Beach. He was killed not more than a mile from this facility. Tonight, investigators say they still don't know why a speeding driver would run him down, then attack him. I, we're just in shock. It's like hard to express, you know, how we're feeling. Tonight, a community is mourning the loss of a local doctor. I, you know, I just heard that it was him, and it's like a family member you lost. Michael Mamoni was an emergency room physician at Pro Oh, in Ritzy, Dana Point, California emergency room, a doctor was riding his bicycle on Pacific Coast Highway. He was stopped at a red light in the bike lane when the driver of the Lexus hit him at high speed, deliberately hit him, right, sending the doctor flying about 40 feet through the air. The Jamaican immigrant right, that did a U-turn got out, yelled about white privilege, and then attacked the prostrate white doctor with a knife and a BB gun. Right, the, the doctor died in his own emergency room. And uh, Steve Saylor says, as usual, heavy is the site to go to for uncurated data dumps on murderers. So this white doctor in Orange County waiting on his bike at an intersection was murdered by a Lexus driving, probably vaguely middle class Jamaican immigrant with Rastafarian religious and mainstream democratic political leanings. The driver deliberately sends the doctor flying about 40 feet through the air, then gets out and while talking about white privilege, stabs the doctor. So higher rates of schizophrenia are found among some groups, right? Not all groups have average rates of schizophrenia. And so particularly with high rates of violent insanity among certain groups, particularly immigrants, maybe we should think about turning down and cutting back on the insightful, I-N-C-I-T-E-F-U-L, but less than insightful, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-F-U-L, anti-white racist hate speech deluge like uh, white privilege. And uh, then we've got the Toronto Globe and Mail says, does racism cause schizophrenia? So his name is Dr. Michael Mamone, an ER doctor, right? One of the, the better citizens in society, right? murdered by this immigrant accountant. Man, these these immigrant accountants are just out of control. His name is Dr. Michael Mamone, white emergency room physician murdered in 82% white, 2% black Dana Point by a Jamaican immigrant who yelled about white privilege during fatal attack. So even in Dana Point, this omnipotent belief about white privilege, keeping black people from succeeding in life has absolutely no potency when confronted with the reality of the truly privileged in America. Dana Point is a beautiful coastal city right on the Pacific Ocean. White doctor was just murdered by a Jamaican immigrant who, while killing this doctor in broad daylight, was yelling about the doctor's white privilege. It's 2023. We live in a country completely devoid of white privilege and one powered by black privilege. Just horrific events. Providence Mission Hospital in Laguna Beach. He was a great doctor. He was such a good clinician. I mean, he would call me and, you know, kind to the patients. He, he, was, he was wonderful. But the 58-year-old doctor's life was cut short Wednesday afternoon in a brutal act of violence. 
In this surveillance video, Mamoni can be seen on his bicycle stopped at a traffic light on PCH at Crown Valley Parkway. As the signal turns green, a speeding Lexus sedan plows into the doctor from behind. The moment of impact, too graphic to show. What we do see is that the car uh, hits Mike uh, strongly, which uh, projects him all the way through the intersection. Investigators say the driver then got out of his car, approached Mamoni, and began stabbing him. The doctor was pronounced dead at a hospital several hours later. Bystanders rushed to the doctor's aid and helped detain the suspect until police and paramedics arrived. Authorities have identified the driver as 39-year-old Van Roy Evan Smith of Long Beach. Investigators say there is no known connection between... Okay, a town of Hispanics left in the dock. Planada flooded, now forgotten. The Hispanic community got flooded. And uh, many of the people who live there are in the United States illegally, making it more difficult for them to qualify for federal disaster funds. Man, we've got to do something about getting more federal disaster funds to illegal immigrants living in the United States. Are we really just going to stand back and allow the, these communities of illegal immigrants to try to get by without federal disaster funds? So, yeah, poor people will tend to live in areas that get flooded more. I remember when I lived in Auburn, there were, you know, Latino farm workers, Latino workers that we had almost nothing to do with, but they kind of lived off to the side. And I remember there was this one community down below my home, and they lived all, all by this creek. And so when this creek would, would flood, yeah, they would get flooded. So life is a lot tougher for poor people, right? It's not just flooding it's not just, you know, inadequate medical care or inadequate food or, you know, all sorts of different, you know, negative you know, life conditions. Like life is harder for, for the poor. Life is hard, period. And if people are in this country illegally, I really don't think we need to be directing, you know, emergency relief their way. Right. If they're in the country illegally, we should be deporting them. And as for this particular community, all right, that's getting getting flooded, you know, life is just tough on poor people. And the best way to have an easier time in life is to work hard, make more money, you know, sacrifice, build something up, you know, make, make smart decisions instead of wanting the government to bail you out. We have you know a couple of different communities in this society who take far more in federal government welfare spending than they ever contribute in taxes. And then we have other communities like the Jewish community and the Asian community and the Anglican community who contribute far more in taxes than they take out in welfare payments. So a productive community right, contributes more than they take out. Uh, a lesson of history as this layman understands it, and then a few quotations. I'm going to take a moment or two to set this up and then just step back. Mm. So here's the lesson of history. We saw it in the First World War and we saw it in the Second World War. Unless the United States intervenes on behalf of democracy and peace in Europe, Europe is a mess and will drag us in sooner or later anyway. That's the lesson of history. Okay. Here's a quotation. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky on the new $45 billion aid package enacted at the end of last year. This is the second spending bill for Ukraine in two months. Our total aid to Ukraine will almost equal the entire military budget of Russia, and it's not as if we have money lying around. Close quote. Senator J.T. Vance of Ohio. I'm sick of Joe Biden focusing on the border of a country, Ukraine, 
I don't care about, while he lets the border of his own country become a total war zone. Final quotation, foreign policy expert Elbridge Colby, hmm. arguing that we should leave the defense of Ukraine substantially to the Europeans. Europe is both less important than Asia, less important to us economically and geopolitically, and our allies in Europe are far more capable of shouldering a big part of the burden of defending themselves against Russia than our Asian allies are of defending themselves against the far stronger China. Everything should be going to Asia while we deprioritize everything else. Close quote. Question one. Hmm. Stephen, the lesson of history notwithstanding, what are we doing in Ukraine? Peter, I noticed you didn't quote Senator Tom Cotton on this question, but we'll take it from here. We heard a lot about the pivot to Asia, uh, a phrase that was a little bit unfortunate. So one thing you didn't hear that build up was uh, much about what's in Americans' best interests, right? What's in America's best interests? What's in our country's best interests? All right, if uh, Europe gets into a muddle, if Europe gets into effects, if Europeans are slaughtering each other, right? Why is America, you know, obliged to sort things out for them? Why not allow the Europeans to step up and, you know, work out their own continent on their own? Why do we have to subsidize and bail them out again and again and again? Right? I think America and every country should operate primarily on the basis of what's in their national self-interest and what's going on in East Asia is far more important for the welfare of the United States than what's going on in Europe. The United States doesn't have any compelling national security interests at risk in Ukraine. That came out of the Obama administration because it implied that we weren't there. When, of course, the United States involvement of Asia goes back a very long way. And it's been part of our prosperity and uh, our way of life for some time to have deep connections to Asia. So the pivot to Asia idea was that, yes, Europe was less important. Yes, Europe was rich and should take care of itself. Yes, Asia was the future. And yes, we needed to invest more there. And then the Ukraine war comes. That is to say, Russia has a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. They've already bitten off big pieces of Ukraine in 2014, for which I think we slapped both Putin's wrists, not just one wrist. And after those slaps on the wrist, he went and decided he wanted to take the whole thing. What did we discover? We discovered that his invasion of Ukraine and Xi Jinping's support, mostly rhetorical, but nonetheless support of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, turned the Europeans into questioning whether they were too close to China or not. The beauty of Xi Jinping's strategy, which he inherited, was that there was a wedge between Europe and the United States on China policy. Meaning, sure, the U.S. was going to be hostile. The U.S., according to China, couldn't abide China's rise. The U.S. was going to hold China down any way it could. But the Europeans, well, they hate conflict. They love trade. They love business. And so for them, they were going to differentiate themselves from the U.S. by not having a hostile China policy. And that worked for a while for the Chinese. And then Xi Jinping just blew it up. He decided to throw his weight behind. And uh, the chat says, I hear race cars all the time now. Do you mean you've got tinnitus, right? You've got a constant ringing in your ears. Invasion of a sovereign country on European soil. And the Europeans said, wait a minute. Maybe our China policy shouldn't be so distant from the U.S. Maybe the U.S. was right about China. Maybe we have to be wary. So I'm not an isolationist. I think it's good to have alliances, right? You can conduct alliances in your own strategic best interests. So one of the things that makes the United States so powerful, particularly compared to China, is that we have a whole bunch of very strong alliances. China's got virtually no allies of any significance. So I think Trump was too disrespectful of our alliances. I think uh, the Biden administration is probably doing a better job with regard to our alliances than the 
Trump administration, like Donald Trump would just you know, tear up, at least verbally, our, our alliances. And our alliances are in our national strategic interest, generally speaking. Of our dependence on China. Maybe we have to reconsider some of the trade pacts where China doesn't abide by international norms or international rules. Maybe, in other words, this is a wake-up call. Now, I could even add here that something similar happened in the case of Japan. Japan, which is probably the country on the planet that, uh, maybe the only country, that understands deeply both the United States mm -hmm. and China, mm -hmm. having a long entangled history with China going back centuries, yes, and now being an ally of the United States after that devastating defeat in the war. Japan, too, began to rethink its China policy and how close it needed to be to China versus how close it needed to be to the U.S. on Asian strategic questions. And so, to a great extent in Europe and to a lesser extent in East Asia, it turned out that the pivot to Asia went through the transatlantic alliance. The stronger the transatlantic alliance got, the stronger China policy got. The more our allies came on side, the more that we weren't moving unilaterally against China. So the horror of the Ukraine war, and it is a horror, they are fighting and dying right now as you and I sit here comfortably speaking. The horror of the Ukraine war delivered a bounty to us on China policy. And so what some people are calling expenditure is actually an investment in our prosperity and security because you're a lot stronger with friends and allies than you are when your friends and allies are moving in another direction. There's a way. Yeah, I agree with Stephen Kotkin here as opposed to the isolationists. You are stronger if you have friends and allies. I mean, just as a live streamer, Right, you have friends, allies, a community that will come on your live stream. You're going to make it a bit much better live stream. You're going to get ideas, support. You're going to have, you know, a community. We naturally, our natural default is to think about other people. Right, where we're not solving problems such as, you know, securing our preferred dental provider, uh, paying our taxes, you know, doing doing our our jobs. Right, where we're not, you know, fixated with a particular problem right in front of us, we naturally incline towards thinking about other people and our alliances with with other people. United States is stronger, is better off having alliances as long as those alliances are arranged in a direction that fits our national security interests. So I don't think NATO is in our vital national security interests anymore. Edge between you and your friends and allies. And so I think we got lucky here. This was not a policy. We did not sit around in the Situation Room or some other august setting on the White House property or in Foggy Bottom and say, how are we going to manage this China stuff? We'll have to reinvigorate the alliances. We'll have to reinvigorate our relationships with our friends. That's how we're going to do it. It was a gift from the Ukrainians. No one saw it coming. Their valor, their ingenuity, their willingness to defend their piece of the earth was a gift to us in our China policy. And it continues to do that. So, Stephen, before I said five questions, as if I could limit myself to five questions when I've got you at the table. But can you... Come on, man. Start with the obsequiousness. And indeed, this latest, what was in the news over the last couple of weeks is that the, the, the Poles have German-made tanks and want permission to let the Ukrainians use those German-made tanks that the Poles own. And the Germans wouldn't even grant that permission unless we went in. The number of German tanks in question is, I believe, single digits. And we're going in and have now committed ourselves to a, I don't remember the unit, squad, Squadron? Of battalion. Battalion of Abrams tanks, which numbers 30, as I read. It's in double digits. Okay. The, even though the, the Europeans said, this is our moment, we will rise to this challenge, what the Ukraine has demonstrated is their dependence on the United States. Why is it that they can't pull themselves together? The EU has been in existence for six decades. They couldn't handle a problem in Kosovo on their own continent. Now they can't handle an even bigger and direr problem 
more direct threat to them. It's already impinging on their economic well-being. Why is it that they can't? They're as populous as we are. They're as rich as we are, and they cannot pull themselves together. Why? Um, how, how to answer that excellent question? So first, we have to acknowledge that Europe is an enormous success. That's why it's good to be friends with them. The European Union? Europe as a whole is an enormous success. They're a bunch of very rich countries. For the most part, they have rule of law and stable constitutional systems. They democratized over time, just like the United States did. More and more people got the right to vote there. And their peace and prosperity is deep. It's in values terms. It's not something that is easily sloughed off by this election or that election or this economic crisis or, or whatever have you. And so they are a success. Now, we can talk about the European Union. We live here in a country where the left loves the European Union, and yet they won't let us teach Western civilization on a college campus. Western civilization is evil to them, and yet they love the European Union. And then the right, they detest the European Union, and yet they want Western civilization to be taught on the college campus. So it's a very strange situation that we find ourselves in. Western civilization, one side won't let us have it, and the other side can't abide it, and yet they're connected. There are many, many issues with the European Union that the Europeans would like to fix, and they can't because of all the issues that you know. Our friends in Britain got out of the European Union in a process that uh, we have to wait and see the, in the fullness of time what that's going to look like, but it doesn't look very successful now because it was a club for all its faults of highly rich, successful, rule of law, democratic, prosperous countries. And so you'd want to be in that club. There are other clubs you could join, and they're not... Yeah, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for a nation state to be alone. We we need our allies. We've got the best allies, don't we, folks? We've got the best strategic alliances, right? We've got the best. We've got NATO and we've got AUKUS. We've got Australia on our side. We've got Japan. We've got New Zealand, right? The United Kingdom. we got the best, don't we? And uh, speaking of the best... Wonder what's going on with uh, Ethan Ralph. Okay, what's he doing here? I just don't like the USA anymore because of psychos like you and because you can easily find me, but when I'm in Mexico, you can never find me. <laughs> I just walk around Mexico as the fat, stylish gringo that, that like, Nobody fucks with, nobody cares about at all. And I barely even tell them what I, nobody even cares what I do. I just say I work online, whatever. Uh, and unlike you psychos, they can't find me. There's no voter registration, like, look up. There's nothing. There's literally no way for you fags to find me. Except for getting doxxed by a family member, which Pantsu's father and or sister, unfortunately, did do that. But uh, I moved in two days, and now you have no clue where I'm at again. Once again, once again, you have no clue where I am. Powerful, powerful words, powerful sentiments there from Ethan Ralph showing us how it is done. All right, let's talk about the temptations of Carl Schmidt. The Temptations of Carl Schmidt by N.S. Lyons Brought to you by Audio.ai Today will be very instructive for those still clinging to the idea of returning to norms and sacred institutions, tweeted one popular young right-wing commentator shortly after the U.S. Supreme Court's draft ruling on abortion, 
was leaked to the left-wing press in May of 2022. It's going to be friend-enemy all the way down, strap-in. I found the tweet striking, though not because of its pessimistic political prediction, which sadly turned out to be all too accurate. Right, so it was Carl Schmidt who said, the essence of the political is the friend-enemy distinction. The enemy is he who comes into view who is all set on wiping out your group. Rather, its abbreviated reference to the concept of the friend-enemy distinction seemed to perfectly illustrate a trend of which I'd begun to take note. As those active in the energetic digital corridors of the more disaffected portions of American politics, especially though not exclusively on the right, may already know, the ideas of one particular thinker have over the last several years become increasingly commonplace vernacular. In a growing proliferation of... So we had this uh, NBA player who got fined $40,000 for saying no homo during an interview. Good look because you guys were lacking that. I, I seen it, but I was like, man, he's just talking for the last. We already had good looking dudes, no homo. But you know how it goes. Whoa. <laughs> All right. This is bad. Sure, the legal office will enjoy that one. Uh, Spencer. <laughs> he, got, he got fined $40,000. <laughs> this is a, a, a Brooklyn Nets player saying no homo. Articles, videos, podcasts, and social media threads. Carl Schmidt political theorist and crown jurist of the Third Reich, has today returned to center stage. Schmidt's once hugely influential theories of politics and law have, at least on the surface, largely been rendered forbidden and obscured in Western intellectual polite society for decades. What I wondered accounts for his sudden intellectual resurrection today. And what does it really mean? I became determined to take a much deeper look at the Nazi philosopher, beginning what became a slightly obsessive year-long dive into the full span of his works, life, and legacy. To many people, this will probably sound incredibly arcane. Right, this is N.S. Lyons, all right? He's got a substack. He's, he's very thought-provoking. Like pure academic pedantry. I assure you it is not. As I soon discovered, the evolution of Schmidt's ideas and the course of his life speaks directly to the forces at work beneath our present political, cultural, and spiritual upheavals almost a century after his own time. From the liberal state's flailing degradation of its popular legitimacy, to the emergence of governance by permanent emergency, to the radical polarization of politics, to the birth of postmodernism and the dominance of identity, Schmidt foreshadowed all of these things. Indeed, to read Schmidt in 2023, can easily present the alluring feeling of having opened a hidden dialogue, willing to honestly diagnosis the undercurrent so obviously raging beneath the chaos, absurdity, and official obfuscations of a Weimar America. Even more significantly, but far less well-known or understood, Schmidt was among the first to truly wrestle with how we should collectively respond to the arrival of what he labeled the Age of Technicity, in which, in a disenchanted world, technology now threatens to dominate man. But his proposed solution would, in the end, only help birth the modern techno-nihilist total state and provoke a cataclysm of violence. To read Schmidt seriously is to flirt with the abyss. It is both to see hard truths revealed and to listen to the false whispers of a snake. Nonetheless, or therefore, I believe Schmidt is truly a symbolic man of our moment, just perhaps not in the way either his newfound fans or longtime detractors, right and left alike, have necessarily thought through. So, one way or another, I think you should probably know more about Carl Schmidt than you do.
If you're willing to listen to what I at least believe I've learned, then pour yourself a long, stiff drink and strap in. Living in Disorder Little about the evolution of Schmidt's political thought can be fully comprehended without appreciating the near-constant political chaos that was the background to his early life in Germany. Born to a staunchly Catholic family in the small town of Plettenberg in 1888, Schmidt quickly proved a brilliant academic pupil, winning himself a... Right, so if your your life is in, in chaos, all right, you're not going to see things clearly, you're not going to be tranquil. If you have all these threats, all right, you're going to have a lot of, you know, body tension, you're going to constantly be, be guarding yourself, and it's not going to make for a very smooth, calm, placid life. And uh, Germany, all right, was a chaotic, you know, very dangerous place when Karl Schmidt was coming of age. Competitive university slot despite being, as he put it, merely an obscure young man from a modest background. By June 1910, not yet 22 years old, he was awarded his doctorate in law, summa cum laude, after completing a 155-page dissertation on guilt and types of guilt. Conscripted into service in 1914 at the outbreak of World War I, Schmidt was likely saved from the same grim fate of many of his friends and classmates several of whom were killed in action within months of their arrival at the front by his doctoral advisor, who arranged for him to receive a staff position in the military administration of semi-autonomous Bavaria. Working a desk job in Munich throughout the war, he would never fight on the battlefield. But he soon witnessed combat anyway, between his fellow Germans. Under martial law, Bavaria proved a hotbed of political turmoil, with powerful local socialist and communist factions generating a constantly looming threat of civil disorder. Given his legal training, it was young Schmidt, to whom the general staff in 1915, gave the assignment of preemptively coming up with a legal justification. So yeah, Tommy Lauren lo looks relaxed, all right? There's not a lot of unnecessary muscular tension there. She's got a lot of good upward direction. Her, her you know, shoulders are wide and releasing. And uh, yeah, I see a lot of ease there with uh, Tommy Lauren justification for why the military executive should be granted an extension of exceptional powers even after the war was over, me of all people. What else may Providence have in store for me, he wondered in his diary at the time. Right, but most people, they just want to stay alive, right? If a dictatorship will enhance your chances of survival, let alone prospering, right? all sorts of people who would normally you know, vote for a democracy, again, sign on with a dictatorship. By 1916, he had duly done as asked, delivering a lecture on the precedence for dictatorship and the state of siege. By 1917, he had been released from service and appointed a civilian member of the military government, heading a unit surveilling socialists and other troublemakers. The end of the war brought much worse trouble, however. Bavaria's last king, Ludwig III, abdicated and fled just ahead of a revolutionary coup on November 7, 1918. This left a vacuum of power into which burst three major factions vying for control, the socialists, the Bolshevik communists, and the nationalist old regime of the military. A regional socialist parliamentary republic declared. So I just got my teeth cleaned. Right, nice, early white, I, I trust. My first yearly checkup, my first checkup in a year. No cavities, no problems, no worries, mate. Everything's good. You'll be glad to know with my teeth. At the same time as the Weimar Republic in Berlin, by the leftist politician Kurt Eisner, 
only lasted about three months before he was assassinated, an event that led to a gunfight inside the parliament building and the proclamation of a general strike. In Berlin, the communists had taken up arms to battle the Reichshauer. Right. So Germany, as we're moving into the late 1920s, early 1930s, has essentially just a choice between two competing totalitarian powers. You had the communists, which would have meant an immediate civil war, as the army would not have put up with communist rule, or the Nazis. So it wasn't like Germans just had this choice between, you know, Nazis and the good guys, right? They essentially had only a choice between Nazis and the communists. So much of life is not a choice between good and evil, great and good, is between bad and worse. Reich defense forces in the streets throughout the winter. In Munich, inspired by communist revolution in nearby Hungary, they soon declared their own Bavarian Soviet Republic in April of 1919. Any semblance of authoritative governance in Munich collapsed. The Reich forcefully intervened, implementing a counter-revolutionary campaign with the help of the paramilitary Free Corps. Free Corps. So in 2020, you know, America's elites was kind of stunning. America's elites sided with a, a criminal, murdering, pillaging organization, terrorist organization known as Black Lives Matter. It was incredible that all these 14, Fortune 500 companies started you know, donating to this terrorist organization that all the elites seemed on the side of, of terror. Right? We had you know, looting, pillaging, burning, murdering, and our elites, our most powerful forces in our society, from the academy to the news media to NGOs to one half of the political spectrum, was totally on board with the terrorists in our, in our own country. So here in L.A., you had you know, these terrorist Black Lives Matter groups you know, marching down the street here, pillaging, breaking, just wrecking society. And, and then you had our police chief like taking the knee in subservience to this terrorist organization. So you get a backlash to that. And part of what January 6th was, was a backlash to six months of Antifa and Black Lives Matter and these left-wing terrorist groups running free with the support of our society's elites and Fortune 500 companies, the news media, the academy, and NGOs. Free Corps. In mid-April, the Bolsheviks took hostage and subsequently executed 10 members of the Free Corps, who then retaliated with the summary execution of hundreds of communists after Munich was retaken by the Reichshauer at the start of May Schmidt, cloistered in the Munich garrison headquarters, found himself at the heart of this fighting and exposed to personal peril. Even after the revolutionaries were put down and the new Weimar Constitution came into effect on August 14th, the situation failed to substantially improve. With the left swept away, Bavaria would eventually become a counter-revolutionary nationalist enclave. Right, so when one side supports terrorism, which is essentially what large parts of the Democratic Party did with regard to Black Lives Matter and Antifa, their opponents are going to just take this lying down. All right, you kick someone, all right, they're very likely to kick and punch you back more severely than you kick them. And so America was kicked Traditional America was kicked, right? It was bruised and battered and pillaged and raped and murdered by Antifa, Black Lives Matter during 2020, all right? And we still have astronomically high crime rates ever since then, thanks to elite support for Black Lives Matter. 
well, you really think that traditional Americans are just going to take it? I'm not so sure of that. Keep me up later. Yeah. And I, I do three hours of radio, you know, so you get three other hours a day. So that's four. That's a lot. Well, we need you on two hours a night. Uh, this, this, some of these officials are like the Keystone Cops, and uh, this country is messed up. The country's messed up, but I, you know, the one thing I do have faith in, and I, I get this from a lot of people, I have faith in the American people. You know, the people that get up, work hard, play by the rules. Great. Cutting but for the analysis. moment, street violence was primed to quickly begin again after the infamous Cap Putsch of March 1920, when a military government seized power in Berlin for four days, provoking a reciprocal revolt in the Ruhr by 50,000 armed Red Army communists. That revolt, too, was crushed, but instability would continue to bleed over into Bavaria and lead to a rolling succession of emergency declarations justifying martial rule all the way through 1925. These were formative years for Schmidt. He spent much of... All right, so the left managed to justify, you know, martial law in much of the United States during the early months of the COVID pandemic and then under the terrorist threat of Black Lives Matter and Antifa, right? I wonder if there's going to be some kind of right-wing reaction. Might not be a very nice reaction. 1917 to 1919, working feverishly on political romanticism, a book-length polemic on the radically individualistic metaphysics of the romantic movement, which he saw as the same spirit at the heart of not only Burgeois liberalism, but modern Roman Catholic political conservatism as well. In particular, he took aim at the endless conversation produced by the asceticized politics of romanticism, which he believed had been institutionalized by liberal democracy, a theme he would return to at length in the crisis of parliamentary democracy, 1923, in which he argued that the liberal commitment to discussion and openness had rendered the actual making of necessary political decisions impossible. For Schmidt, watching the costly day-to-day -day muddling through of the Reichstag in the face of crisis after crisis, this was not an abstract issue. More broadly, the war period marked a sharp turn by Schmidt away from the more romantic and idealized Christian democratic politics of his youth and toward a political realism heavily influenced by the counter-revolutionary thinkers of earlier centuries, including Machiavelli, Cortes, and above all, Hobbes. From this point forward, he would develop an obsession with the ever-present potential for physical violence that lurks beneath the thin veneer of civilization and is kept contained only by the state's total monopoly on force. He felt this truth was dangerously ignored by a liberal politics that assumed an inherently good, rather than evil, nature of man. He would again and again return to Hobbes' idea that the absolutely foundational contract behind any state's legitimacy is its ability to provide citizens with security in exchange for their obedience, later writing that. No form of order, no reasonable legitimacy or legality can exist without protection and obedience. The protego ergo obligo is the cogito ergo sum of the state. A political theory which does not systematically become aware of this sentence remains an inadequate fragment. Hobbes designated this as the true purpose of his Leviathan, to instill in man once again the mutual relation between protection and obedience, human nature as well as divine right, demands its inviolable observation. Schmidt would in his work never, except in the most passing of references, discuss his own traumatic experiences. But he allowed Hobbes to speak for him. Hobbes himself had experienced this truth in the terrible times of civil war, 
because then all legitimate and normative illusions with which men like to deceive themselves regarding political realities in periods of untroubled security vanish. If within the state there are organized parties capable of according their members more protection than the state, then the latter becomes at best an annex of such parties, and the individual citizen knows whom he has to obey. His health shaken by the fighting in Munich, Schmidt was officially discharged on medical grounds from his administrative position at the end of June 1919. Longing for order in disordered times, he would go on to pen his own theories on how people and state should fulfill their obligations to each other. In our own time, meanwhile, we might consider again the potential reasons for why Schmidt has returned to the forefront of debate at this particular moment in time. For ours is a moment yet unfolding in the wake that traumatic, revolutionary, never truly reckoned with the year of 2020, when the United States witnessed some of the most widespread and destructive political riots in its history. Riots that citizens across the country observed with shock, the forces of order were not merely unable to suppress, but actively forbidden from suppressing, by a state that in large part openly proclaimed its allegiance to the insurrectionary faction, bent on intimidation and destruction. Though certainly not as deadly as the events witnessed by Schmidt, this revelatory moment, in which the state betrayed its most fundamental obligation to its citizens, was perhaps sufficient for many to begin calling into question all those legitimate and normative illusions with which men like to deceive themselves regarding political realities. Exceptions For Schmidt, who would in his years after leaving the army take up a series of academic positions in Munich, Griefswald, Bonn, and Berlin, the focus of intellectual life became finding a way to strengthen the state and ensure its security. Yeah, so the greatest concern for traditional people is security, threats of disorder and contagion. People on the left, their greatest concerns are ignorance and bigotry. That's going to do it for me. Take care. Bye-bye.